What's up, Canyon Brats? Thanks for clicking on and listening to another episode. This episode is a very important episode. It actually deals with a crucial and critical kind of subject, and that is mining in Grand Canyon, specifically uranium mining in Grand Canyon. Something we need all of you to take action on. We'll talk about it in the episode, but basically uh, going and contacting your senator and telling him to be a co-sponsor of a bill. We've got a very special guest. We've got Amber Riamondo, who works for the Grand Canyon Trust, and she is a rock star superhero for the canyon. She's going to tell us all about mining in the canyon, what the important issues are, what they're working on, and how we can help. So uh, listen in. I hope you enjoy this. I hope you learn a lot from this episode. And if you feel like it's important, go ahead and share it with someone else. Share it with a friend. Share it on Facebook. Share it on Instagram. Share, 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 share. And tell people it's very important that we know this issue. It is a critical issue for the canyon. And we all love the canyon, right? All right. Well, again, thanks thanks so much. Uh, make sure and, uh, yeah, tell a friend about a canyon brat. All right. Let's hop on into the show, Mining in the Canyon, with Amber Riamondo. Welcome to an episode, a very special episode, a very important episode of Canyon Brats. Hi, Carrie. Hi, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> and the third person we need to say hi to is uh, Amber Riamondo, who is going to be talking with us about, like I said just a second ago, a very, very important issue. Um, something that is, I mean, I would put critical status on it. Um, something that will affect, you know, millions of people and future people and past people. So hopefully people are understanding that I think this is an important thing. <laughs> and what is that important thing? <laughs> oh, oh yeah. Uh, that important thing is mining. And I think specifically we'll really talk about uranium mining in and around Grand Canyon National Park. Amber, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Yeah, thanks for having me. Sweet. So yeah, we're here to talk to you because you are... Uh, whenever I look up any information uh, on on uranium mining and some of the issues that surround that, your name is is all over the place, and so this is kind of a treat to be able to get this information straight from someone who knows what they're talking about, not just <laughs> us sitting here jabbing about it. <laughs> well, thanks for the opportunity. And so, so what is your position um, to be dealing with this? Um, I am the energy program director for the Grand Canyon Trust, which is a regional conservation nonprofit. We're based here in Flagstaff, Arizona, um, but our mission area encompasses not just the Grand Canyon, but the entire Colorado Plateau. And so if anybody doesn't know what the Colorado Plateau is, it's, it's a huge swath of land. A lot of the, what we think of as the Southwest, it, it takes up Northern Arizona, Northwestern New Mexico, um, Western Colorado and Eastern Utah. But um, yeah, so I, I do a lot of my work around Grand Canyon. And like you said, um, a, a lot of it has to do with, with stopping uranium mining in this region. Good deal. And that's actually a great thing to explain the Colorado Plateau. Uh, a lot of people know Grand Canyon, but aren't aware of this ecosystem. I mean, it's multiple ecosystems, obviously, but this huge area um, that, that your organization and a lot of people try to protect. Uh, yeah, so we are wanting to talk about, um, in particular, probably the uh, what's going on in Congress and what's going on in Senate and, and a bill that could potentially protect Grand Canyon. Well, I'll let you talk about this, but we're talking about the Grand Canyon Centennial uh, Protection Act. So can you explain um, the, the birth of, of that act, like how that came to be? Yeah, um, so the act itself has a longer story that prefaces it. But the in, in short, the Grand Canyon Centennial Protection Act, as it is, was introduced in February of 2019 by Congressman Raul Grijalva. Um, he, he introduced it on the 100th anniversary of Grand Canyon National Park. And the intent of the act is to make permanent a current temporary mining ban on about 1 million acres of public lands outside adjacent to Grand Canyon National Park. You may already know this, but with national park status, we're not allowed to mine inside the boundaries of a national park, but you can mine on public lands. So like BLM managed lands and U.S. Forest Service lands. Hmm. And when you're talking about the Grand Canyon, everything is interconnected. So, so Grand Canyon National Park is and could be 
further implicated in the consequences of uranium mining that happens just outside the park boundaries on Forest Service land and on BLM land. So the intent of the temporary withdrawal, it's called a withdrawal, but it's a, a mining ban um, that's currently in existence and of the Grand Canyon Centennial Protection Act is to achieve permanent protection, a permanent ban of mining on those lands. This might be a really basic question, but for a lot of people who are listening who don't know anything about this issue, um, why is uranium mining bad? I mean, yeah. it sounds bad, but like, what are the actual threats to the Grand Canyon and just public land mm-hmm. in general? No, that's a really good question. Um, so in general, uranium mining is dangerous because uranium is a radioactive element that um, when it's introduced into the human environment, so like in a space where we would inhale radionuclides or drink, drink it through contaminated drinking water, for instance, can cause really serious health effects like various forms of cancer, kidney failure, cardiovascular problems, um, a lot of really nasty, often fatal illnesses stem from exposure to uranium. So um, a lot of times when we talk about the risks of uranium mining, I think the first thing that comes to mind, and rightfully so, is the impact on the miners themselves. Because we know that back when we first started mining uranium, um, in the United States anyway, there was a huge boom during what's referred to as the atomic era in the 50s and 60s, when the United States government was incentivizing the mining of uranium for the in order to build nuclear bombs. And during that time, a lot of miners were exposed to radon gas, which is an, an, an after effect of mining uranium. It, it comes from exposing uranium to oxygen. Um, so a lot of those miners ended up with lung cancer. And um, that is a concern for sure. But then there's also this additional layer that comes after the mining is done and over with, which is any residual um, soil contamination or water contamination that continues to impact communities into the future. So um, Navajo Nation, which is right near our town of Flagstaff, Arizona, um, has over 500 abandoned uranium mines left on their lands from the 50s, 60s, and 70s that are still contaminating land and still contaminating groundwater and um, and causing a lot of health problems for people today from this mining that happened decades prior. And the reason that it's still impacting us is because partly because uranium has a, a half-life into the millions of years. So I don't think any of us can fathom that. And I think the the best thing to do when it comes to uranium mining is just leave it in the ground because uranium is relatively stable, if not entirely stable, where it is in the in the Earth's crust um, without being exposed to the elements. Once you dig it up, once you expose it to oxygen and water, then it becomes readily mobile. the The presence of oxygen is really key to is really key to the ability of uranium to dissolve in water, for instance. So if you leave it where it is, it's relatively safe. If you dig it up, you open a can of worms that can be there for generations to come. That was my really long-winded answer to why uranium mining is dangerous. <laughs> no, that was great. Yeah, and I think that that was uh, a great point to bring it back to to why uranium is actually dangerous uh, instead of just skipping ahead <laughs> to saying saying no to something. Yeah, we want to understand uh, why we should be saying uh, well, either saying either saying no or saying you know to to pull back from it. So. These effects on both human health, uh, or human health, is a is a big issue. Obviously, we don't we want to protect people, including minors, including people like you said who are affected decades later. Um, and then you talked about oxygen being an important part to to kind of release it into you know places it's not supposed to be. But I know water is also a, a huge component, um, and mining introduces a bunch of water uh, to try to. Uh, either I don't know. Is it maybe you can talk about that uh, the the use of water or water? I know there's a bunch of water contamination going yeah. on with some of these previous mines. Yeah. So so uranium mining often entails water, partly because when you're drilling a mine shaft, you it requires water to just drill the hole. Um, you can't just you can't just operate that without water. So hmm. um, that's where 
water is used in the construction of a mine. It's also used in, in dust suppression. So to keep the dust from blowing off site, they're required to spray it. Um, but the, where uranium mining gets in trouble with water is that, for instance, in the Grand Canyon region, the ore that the uranium ore that the company is targeting can be is you know hundreds, if not more than a thousand feet below the surface. So in order to get to that, you have to drill a mine shaft several hundred feet into the earth, and as you do that, you cut through various levels of perched groundwater aquifers, other groundwater aquifers that are more um, continuous. And then once you, once you pierce those aquifers, then you get water flowing into the mine shaft, which is what, um, what's happening at one mine on the South Rim right now. Yeah. And I think that's, yeah, that was what I saw. I saw kind of a diagram showing, yeah, all those aquifers and uh, an aquifer is basically just like underground water storage. Um, mm -hmm. Think of like a lake underground, even though it's not, you know, cool and wide open, but uh, it was showing that and it was showing that they were having to extract that water. And I don't know where they, and they were spraying it into the air. Yeah. So, so because the water has been introduced inside the uranium mine, um, it's that also, because it, there's oxygen and water mixed together, then you get the additives of dissolved uranium and other, other mineralizations like arsenic um, collecting in the water. And so then it, it's contaminated water that you're trying to keep from either flowing beyond the mine shaft into other aquifers or from overflowing the on-site wastewater pond. Um, and at Canyon Mine, which is the mine on the South Rim that we're referring to, when they were digging their mine shaft in 2016, in late 2016, they, they struck a, a large quantity of water. And ever since then, they've been they've been taking on more and more water every year. Um, and as they take on that water, they have to control it. They can't let it stay in the mine shaft. They have to put it into this lined on-site wastewater pond. And they have, to, they have to be able to contain it in that wastewater pond. But when you get so much water coming in that you can't manage it in that wastewater pond, then you're in trouble. Then they had to figure out other ways to try to lower the water level in the pond. So the, the pictures that you see on our website and in some of our blog posts um, are of water spraying from, they're called land sharks. They look like snow makers. Um, they're, they're just huge sprayers sitting on the side of the impoundment spraying water. Those have since been changed a little bit. They're now sitting in the center of the pond. But regardless, there's overspray happening onto bare ground. Yeah, that's crazy. So even to this day, they're, all they're doing is just trying to lower the amount of water that they're having to store. And I'm sure they probably don't have an idea of how much water is coming. Or, I mean, it could be continuing for, for a thousand years, possibly, I would think. Right. Yeah. I mean, they, they make the argument that it's temporary, that it'll abate when the aquifer that they've pierced is drained, which I would argue is a terrible <laughs> A terrible solution, first of all, but <laughs> but to your point, um, there's no guarantee that it that it won't keep flowing in. Even if, say, they did drain it now, um, aquifer recharge happens. <laughs> like water that falls as rainfall percolates down into the earth and recharges those aquifers, and then you just have the same problem again, probably generations from now, when there's nobody sitting there to watch it. Um, so it's it's really a, another can of worms on top of the mine itself. Yeah, and those worms are very scary and very dangerous, mm -hmm. <laughs> that can of worms. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this is something that's happening now in a mine, and this is something that could happen to other mines as well, it sounds mm -hmm. like. And mm -hmm. so how many... I don't know if you'd use the words active, but how many potential mines would be out there that could be creating, you know, a, a multiplied effect like this? Well, um, any number really. Right now there are over 800 remaining active mining claims in Whoa. the region that is currently uh, banned, has the current mining ban. Um, but the reason that this is such a risk around the Grand Canyon is that we don't have a clear understanding of hydrogeology, so like the groundwater flow in the region, because it's very fractured rock. So 
it's not like you can look at one sample and say, okay, this is contiguous. This happens. The same thing that's happening here is happening at point B and point C. It's all very different. So one of the best visualizations I think I could give of the of the hydrogeology around the Grand Canyon is sort of like imagining a pipe system that was designed by Dr. Seuss, where there are <laughs> different flow paths going in multiple directions from one spot. Um, it might take a day to get from point A to point B. It might take a decade or a thousand years. It really depends on the, the type of rock that it's flowing through and then whether or not there are fractures and faults for the water to travel more quickly. And because this is such a vast region, um, it's really hard to know it, with any level of certainty what will, um, what will happen to groundwater if it's contaminated at one point um, and where that could go from there, whether it's the water source for Grand Canyon National Park, the water source for the Havasupai tribe, which resides down in Supai Village, and that's their sole source of water and also where it's, it's their identity. Havasupai means people of the blue-green water, and, and Havasu Creek, is it flows from the Red Wall Aquifer, which is a regional aquifer that underlies Canyon Mine and many other potential mines. Hmm. What was the name of that aquifer again? Redwall Mawav Aquifer. Oh, okay, gotcha. It's in the yeah, Redwall the two different limestone. Layers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Let's see. Know the canyon's history, study the rocks <laughs> made, made by, by time. time. Oh, okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I might have missed this at the beginning, so I apologize if I did. But so the Grand Canyon Centennial Protection Act was passed by the House mm -hmm. in 2019. Was it also passed by the Senate? It was not yet. It's been introduced. Gotcha. So is that your next fight? Is that, and like, what are the, what do you foresee as like your biggest challenges? What do you think that the odds are of actually getting it through the Senate as well? Yeah. Um, it's, it's tough and it shouldn't be tough. I mean, we're talking about the Grand Canyon and protecting a worldwide wonder. Um, but nevertheless, the reality is that it passed the house in October. We, we did manage to get, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, nine Republican votes. Um, and then all but one Democrat in the House voted for it. So, so it passed, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't this amazing bipartisan showing of support. Shocking. And then in the <laughs> Senate, we got it introduced. Um, Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema introduced it in December. And now it's just sitting as an introduced bill waiting for a public hearing. And the odds are probably honestly slim right now, but that has to do with a lot of factors, including what we're currently experiencing, this, this global pandemic and mm -hmm. economic crisis that is keeping everybody preoccupied. But that being said, I think that there is a lot of potential for this to succeed, if not this year in the future, because at least in the public sphere, there's a lot of bipartisan support for this kind of a bill. Um, while we see a lot of partisanship in Congress, the, the polls of actual real life Arizona voters does not reflect that partisanship. Mm -hmm. in, in, in recent years, we have done a um, bipartisan poll. I say we, we, we didn't do it. We actually hired reputable Republican and Democratic pollsters to, to conduct a poll of Arizona voters and ask them like straight up what they thought of protecting Grand Canyon from uranium mining. And across the board, the majority of Republicans, independents, and Democrats all supported protecting the Grand Canyon over mm -hmm. providing access to, to mining. So that's, I guess that's the, the frustrating rub is that, is that voters themselves value the Grand Canyon. They don't think it's worth risking. And when, um, when we look at Congress and where election dollars come from, mm -hmm. I think arguably that has a, a lot to say in terms of what a congressman says and does. Um, and is that an important factor? Uh, is there a kind of a, a ticking time bomb of when we need to get this passed? Yeah, I mean, it, in order for it to pass this Congress, it has to pass this year, 
but that if it doesn't pass in this Congress, then we just take the same support that we've had from the, for, throughout this whole process that we've built this coalition of um, local business groups, um, the city of Flagstaff, Coconino County, tribal governments. It's a, it's a broad array of supporters who want the Grand Canyon to be permanently protected from uranium mining. And we would just continue on with that support into the next Congress and we'll try again. I mean, the thing about all of this is that it's all, it's all a long, a long game. I think it's, it's easy to get really drudged down in the, in, in the doom and gloom of thinking like politics aren't really in our favor on this issue right now. Like, does that mean that it's worth giving up? Absolutely not. I think we should just keep, keep pushing it forward and keep highlighting and underscoring the fact that this is, um, this is something that Arizonans and not just Arizonans across the board, but Americans across the board support and eventually we'll get through. (laughs) Is there a a timeline on the temporary, um, ban? Is there a, or when does that expire? So it was put in place in 2012 and um, it was administratively put in place. And so the longest that a, a mining ban can be put in place by, by in this case, it was the Secretary of the Interior, is 20 years. So it's set to expire in 2032. However, um, because it's an administrative mining ban, there's no guarantee that it stays either. Um, I mean, we would we would argue that nobody can lift it because that's... I mean, that should be the case, but political whim can go a lot of ways. So um, one of the things that we've been worried about, honestly, since 2017 is, um, is that the Trump administration would try to lift the temporary mining ban and it's come up. <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't know if I can, I can talk about critical minerals, but... Um, so feel free to delete this later. <laughs> but, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. No, I think. Um, so once the Trump administration came into office, we started seeing the dominoes fall in favor of the uranium mining industry. And one of the things that happened was that for the first time in history, uranium was listed as a critical mineral, it's called. A critical mineral is a mineral that's deemed important to economic and national security for the United States. And that, and that has a supply chain that could be in danger. And importantly, the definition includes the specification that it is a non-fuel mineral or mineral material. So a non-fuel mineral is something that's not used to generate electricity. And, um, and a mineral material is something like sand or gravel. So uranium doesn't fit into either of those categories, given that uranium is, is historically treated as and a fuel mineral. It, we put it in nuclear fuel rods and use it to fuel nuclear power plants. So um, it had never been a critical min- mineral in all of history. And in 2017, the USGS, which maintains the list of critical minerals and updates it regularly, updated their list. It didn't include uranium. That was December 19th of 2017. On December 20th, President Trump signed Executive Order 13817 ordering the Department of Interior this time to write the list of critical minerals. So 2018 rolled around, the Department of Interior finished their list of critical minerals, and lo and behold, uranium is suddenly on it. And then on top of that, in accordance with the executive order, the Department of Commerce developed a critical mineral strategy for the federal government that's aimed at identifying methods that the federal government can use to enhance access to uranium and other critical minerals. And that came out last summer. And on it includes things like lifting temporary mining bans or mineral withdrawals in general. So I keep saying mineral withdrawal, but just know that it's interchangeable with mining ban. It's a withdrawal of of location of mining claims under the 1872 mining law. So should clarify. Um, But it included lifting mining bans. It included uh, finding ways to still mine and explore for critical minerals inside um, protected landscapes, so national parks, wildlife refuges, national monuments, places where we can't currently mine, they want to still be able to mine. Uh, taxpayer subsidies, 
to also make up that gap. So they want taxpayers to pay the the margin for the mining company. So a whole slew of like <laughs> really terrible things when you think about the the larger context, especially of like the lingering legacy that exists on the Colorado Plateau, um, the people who still today are dying of cancer because of exposure to uranium that was mined decades ago. And then they want taxpayer dollars to further their business. It's infuriating. <laughs> it, I, it sounds like actually a really important kind of arm of, of this battle uh, is this whole definition of critical mineral and putting it on there. And that makes sense that it would be a non-fuel because like you said, then there's things like like government subsidies and, and things that shouldn't be attached to, to fuel um, when you think of other ones, especially like coal and oil and those kind of things. Um, we would never think... Uh, well, not never, but wouldn't really think of of helping taxpayers helping you know oil companies out. Yet uh, this is now put on a list where where we could be helping you know another energy kind of company. So it just it definitely sounds like a big part of the battle. Um, speaking of critical minerals, I've been sitting here looking at one of my critical minerals um, <laughs> that I nice. have yet to open yet. So oh, still I thought you were already on your second. No, no, this is <laughs> I was enthralled by the Usually conversation. <laughs> Yeah, usually I am by in by my second. But, um, yeah, this is so. the first time I've ever beat Nick at drinking a beer. Well, you still have a little bit. Left, Good job. So. <laughs> yeah. So Let's what's see. what's next um, for you for the Grand Canyon Trust and protecting um, the Grand Canyon, whether it's from you know uranium mining or something else? Like, what are the other things mm -hmm. that you're working on now? Um, well, specific to uranium, I mean, obviously we want to get. A permanent protection for the Grand Canyon region from uranium mining. We're also continually watching the canyon mine um, because it is this ongoing disaster of of a mine. Before it hasn't even it's it's been in existence since before I was born. It was it was permitted in 1986, and it still has not extracted a single ton of ore. It's been hmm. on standby for all of these decades. They finally started digging the mine shaft again in 2012. And then they finally, they, they struck this level in the geology where they hit all this water and it's just an ongoing disaster. And at the same time, they have permits as we speak from the Arizona Department of Environmental Quality that treat it like it has no significant potential to contaminate groundwater. So we're trying right now with partner organizations like the CR Club and Center for Biological Diversity to um, get a more protective groundwater permit to be required by Arizona Department of Environmental Quality. Um, because right now the, the permit that they have doesn't have any, any mandatory requirements. It has voluntary conditions. So, uh, so anytime they violate it, they get notified by ADEQ that they shouldn't have done that. And then Energy Fuels, which is the company that owns the mine, just replies that was a voluntary condition. So remove that <laughs> from, <laughs> from this notice. So it's, it's, um, there needs to be more stringent protections at Canyon Mine. There needs to be better monitoring requirements because those also don't exist. Um, and I'm talking at least three groundwater wells to monitor groundwater around the mine site. Um, there's currently only two and one is the mine supply well, and that's the only one that goes below the ore body. And then there's another one that's taxpayer funded that the USGS put in just outside of the mine site that goes, um, down to a thousand feet. So it's basically a data point. It's not any, there's no guarantee that it would catch groundwater contamination if it happened. Mm. Yikes. Yeah. Canyon, Canyon mine just kept popping up when I was looking up some of this stuff and um, some of the struggles. That's amazing to hear though, that they haven't even extracted one, <laughs> yeah. one, one bit of ore out of that. Um, <clears throat> and, and yet they continue to 
it sounds like they're continuing to pay for it. Like they're still putting money in. I would, I would think it's them putting money in to do this pumping and this spraying. Um, I mean, are they still, is it costing them money every single day? Yeah, it's, it's not a profitable operation. I can tell you that. Um, <laughs> but they're hoping that someday they can attain some kind of government support in order for it to be profitable for them. Uh, is Kenya mine, is that within the area that would be protected? Like, is there, yeah. would they be shut down? No. Um, so the way that mining bans work, at, at least at, as things are right now, they wouldn't be shut down. And that's because mining bans, whether it's the temporary ban or the permanent one that's established by Congress, have an exclusion for what are called valid existing rights. And those are, it's a long legal <laughs> Um, has a lot of legal implications, but basically it means that the mine had pre-established a claim on economically feasible minerals. Um, so when Canyon Mine told the Forest Service that it wanted to resume mining operations in 2012, the Forest Service said that they did have valid existing rights. We're currently contesting that in court mm. because we think that's really wrong. Um, and it's not an economic an economic operation, but yeah, if, if a mine can show that they have these valid existing rights, then they can go forth despite the mining ban. Right now, Canyon Mine is the only one that we are aware of having tried for that sort of determination and gotten it. Okay. Um, well, that's good because as soon as you started saying that, it kind of scared me that there's a lot of others that would just continue on. Yeah. Yeah, no, there's there um, there aren't any at the moment, <laughs> so that's good. <laughs> Thanks. Um, you took a trip uh, to talk in front of um, I don't know who, who who exactly you were talking in front of. I forget, um, but you went to DC, I believe, to yeah. uh, give a, a speech. Can you tell us, uh, run us through that? Yeah. So part of the legislative process for the Grand Canyon Centennial Protection Act was a uh, was a hearing in DC, a legislative hearing. Um, and there were actually two bills that had hearings last year that I was involved with. The first was, they were both in June. The first was for the Grand Canyon Centennial Protection Act, and the other was for the Uranium Classification Act, which would have removed uranium from the critical minerals list, which we just talked about. Um, and so I got invited by the Natural Resources Committee on the House side to come testify at this at both of these legislative hearings about um, uranium mining in general, but for the Grand Canyon Centennial Protection Act, it, it was about the significance of um, uranium's impact to this region and to the Grand Canyon and to our partners who a lot of them are, um, are tribal communities. And so, yeah, I just, I went back to talk about that <laughs> yeah were there any memorable moments or, or conversations um surrounding that 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 stick out um i did have an interesting interaction in the second hearing that i was testifying at um congressman gosar he's an arizona arizona congressman funny enough we're both from the same hometown of rock springs mm -hmm. wyoming <laughs> <laughs> And he, um, he's an adamant supporter of the uranium mining industry. And he has this theory that is just like scientifically inaccurate that, that uranium contamination, because there is, there is naturally occurring uranium. It's a, it's an area with, with, I mean, it's, it's there. So if there is a place where it's cropped out, then you might see you might see it in um, on the surface. And so he has this theory that if you mine uranium, then you remove any naturally occurring uranium contamination because um, he was saying that water flows through a breccia pipe, which is where the uranium deposits are found and comes out and seeps in springs. And so if we just mine that breccia pipe and remove the uranium, then that the problem will be gone, which is, mm. <laughs> For the reasons we've talked about with the combination of oxygen and water, just 
it's just misinformation. It's completely scientifically inaccurate. So, so when you, it, it's, it's stable until you start to mine that space and re-expose it to oxygen and water. So anyway, he tried to have this like gotcha moment of saying, if it's such a big deal, then we should be taking the uranium out and letting water flow through and come out clean. And I, and so he said, he wrapped that up with saying like, so it makes no sense what you've come here with today. And so I just took the opportunity to, to tell him that um, he was misunderstanding how uranium comes to be dissolved in groundwater. <laughs> and the fact that these ore deposits even exist in the first place has a lot to do with the fact that there is little to no oxygen there. And that's why it, it's there. So it's stable where you're trying to mine it. And when you mine it, you're, you're inviting it to reintroduce itself into the human environment. So you were able to turn that gotcha moment right back, right back at him. <laughs> it was satisfying. I think, I think I've a lot seen of that video relate. of your response many times. <laughs> oh. Say that again. <laughs> it like that? almost went viral. I said, I think I've seen her, um, the video of that response a few times. <laughs> oh. oh, nice. It was very like, gotcha I'm right so, back. <laughs> I'm so glad. Yeah. I mean, I think all of us can relate in some respect. Like, um, it's frustrating being here in the public and seeing blatant misinformation being shared by, it could be, you know, members of Congress or any number of people in powerful positions who have mm -hmm. an agenda. And it, so it's, it's a rare and satisfying experience to be able to just correct them in person yeah. for a change. Yeah. So moving forward, what does the science uh, need to need to focus on to help support this um, this push to get mining away is there is there science going on mm -hmm. right now that's trying to support it and what needs to be done in the future? Yeah, I mean, so like I was saying before, the hydrogeology is so complex and different from place to place around the Grand Canyon that for for science to be able to tell us exactly um, where groundwater flows at any given point in the canyon is a far more aspirational than operational hmm. ask of our researchers. So I think if anything, um, additional scientific research is always very important, but I think what it has shown us already is that that question is so vast and the uncertainties are so vast in the region that the the right answer is just to permanently say no to uranium mining around the Grand Canyon. We don't need it. Um, we don't need it in general, and we especially don't need it from the Grand Canyon region. And so, if anything, just the the complex nature of the research that needs to be done should just tell us that we when you know too little, just don't go there. Yeah, that's actually a good way of thinking about it, that uncertainty, because people could say, well, you don't even know if this contamination would go where it would go. Mm -hmm. And you could come right back and say, well, exactly. We don't know at all where it could go. So that is a reason to just nip it in the bud. Right. I mean, it, and it comes down to a question of who stands to benefit and who stands to bear the risk. And the only people that benefit from this are the multinational uranium companies that want to mine and have some hope of making money. Um, and who bears the risk are everybody else, the people who want to visit Grand Canyon National Park, the people who raft the river in the bottom, the, the indigenous tribes that have called the Grand Canyon home since time immemorial. And the Havasupais live there physically today, but the Grand Canyon is the spiritual home for a number of Native American tribes. Um, it's, it's communities like Flagstaff, where the, the base of our economy is outdoor recreation and tourism. And without the millions of visitors that go to Grand Canyon National Park every year, where would we be? Um, it's a, it's, it's a stark comparison to look at the, the economic drivers that Grand Canyon in its, in its intact state brings to the, brings to Northern Arizona and the Colorado Plateau versus the very temporary um, short-lived jobs that could be, that could come with a uranium mine because a Brecha 5 uranium mine, by the way, um, 
doesn't have a long life. Like I think when people think of mining, they might think of like the coal mines of old that lasted for, you know, dad and son mined at it and it's still going. Um, Brechtopipuranium mines are really small and they, they can last anywhere from two to 10 years in the rosiest of pictures. Canyon mine, for instance, the rosiest picture they can paint is 10 year mine life, employing up to 60 people the peak of production. So, wow. and, and everything else you read since then is like, oh, we expect it to be operating for like two to five years. So the economics don't pan out. Um, and, and again, it just leaves everybody else holding the bag for years to come. That is, uh, that is a huge point. I think to me, that just hit me because you said multinational. Mm-hmm. And so how many of these mines or maybe all of them are, are, you know, partially or maybe fully outside of the U.S.? So um, the, the companies that own a lot of the claims around the Grand Canyon are subsidiaries of international mining companies. Hmm. So they're on paper, they're U.S. based, but their parent companies are elsewhere. Um, and that's the vast majority, actually, of mining claims. If you If you go to our website, you can click on our resources tab and we have a bunch of maps. And one of the things that we've mapped are the mining claims that still exist in the region. So they have, they're not actually mined, but they're, they're claims that have been staked. Um, and they're, they're held by a handful of companies, and the majority of them have parent companies outside of the United States. That just doesn't seem – that seems like a, a, very <laughs> a very obvious thing of trading economics. Why would we trade millions of visitors and a huge amount of money every year for a spread out, you know, check to multinationals for two to 10 years. That's, I don't know. I know a lot of this is duh to a lot of people, but (laughs) like that just, that hits hard to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's shocking if nothing else, just because we're talking about taxpayer dollars, we're talking about American lives and all of this is (laughs) the, a lot of the, a lot of the, um, argument being put forth by the uranium industry under the Trump administration is U.S. national security. Like, we need this for U.S. national security, which isn't the case, but that's a really ironic argument to be making if if your parent company is not even in the United States. Right. Well, so what does... Uh, not to be a downer because I'll bring this back up again. Um, but what does a loss look like? Um, you know, if you could mm-hmm. say in general, what does a loss look like in 20 years? Um, a loss is some scenario where the mining ban goes away and we don't have a permanent mining ban and any number of the either 800 mining claims that are already there or the 10,000 mining claims that were that were staked at, in the post 2007 price spike era um, go forward and they have problems like Canyon Mine has and maybe one mine doesn't have a, a significant impact on the region but surely many of them could and then you have a situation where um, in 20 years we have many conduits for contamination that will impact the Grand Canyon and people who depend on water supplies and seeps and springs and delicate ecosystems that are all contaminated because of mines that didn't all happen at once, but happened cumulatively over time and have that cumulative impact on these really precious resources. Yeah, and and extremely precious. Uh, the Canyon Brats out there that are listening to this, or you know us and us who really you know go below the rim and explore. And you t- you talked about raft trips before. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like you know that those impacts that you talk about. I mean, God, I mean the yeah the Havasupai and 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 those kind of people who would just be devastated. But other than that, it would just kind of turn into everybody hanging out on the rim and no one going below the rim anymore, mm-hmm. or like exploring the river. Um, you know, just that human impact. It could be an extrapolation of the contamination that's already there. Like, um, I don't know if you guys are aware of Orphan Mine. Do you know mm-hmm. about that? Yeah. 
So, um, so that mine quit operating in 1970. And today, as you know, as a hiker in the canyon, you can't drink out of Horn Creek because mm -hmm. it has high levels of uranium contamination, most likely from that mine. And so right now it's just Horn Creek that you can't drink out of. But what happens if other mines come in and create problems and maybe they're not the problems they create aren't detected right away because we don't have adequate monitoring systems and because the hydrogeology is really complicated and we don't see the contamination for years to come. Um, it's all a big complicated mess and I just don't think it's wise. And I think a lot of people agree it's not wise to, to open that can of worms. Yeah. Well, you said you were going to bring it back up. So yeah. what does a win look like? <laughs> um, a win looks like in 20 years, we have permanent protection for this area that uranium mining will never again be allowed in these precious landscapes that are critical to the Grand Canyon and to people who live in and depend on the Grand Canyon for any number of things. Um, and to know that the Grand Canyon is protected for our generation and for generations to come instead of, instead of not being. <laughs> is there anything that um, people listening can do to help in this effort of protecting the Grand Canyon and the Colorado Plateau? Yeah, I, I, I think one of the best things that we can do is tell our senators, and I mean, it doesn't hurt to also contact your congressman, even though it's already gone through the House, but just to hammer that difference we were talking about earlier between the polarization that's there at the elected official level that is not there at the, at the voter level and um, letting our elected representatives know that we support a permanent mining ban, no matter what background we come from. Um, and I, so, so right now it's specific to the bill that's in the Senate uh, while it awaits a hearing and a vote on the Senate floor, we need more co-sponsors. So listeners from anywhere in the country can call their senator and ask them to co-sponsor this bill with Senator Cinema. Um, and it's still called the Grand Canyon Centennial Protection Act. So easy to find. <laughs> um, and, and that's really helpful because it sends the message that this is not just the mission of a lone senator from Arizona. This is something that that um, a lot of people are behind, and it's help. It's helpful now, and if it doesn't make it through the Senate today, it's helpful in the future because it's it's a record. It's a continual record that this is something that a lot of people care about, and it it gives us a little ground to stand on if we have to bring it up again. Well, that's a great point to say, uh, to tell people that it's, you know, it's something that, that co-sponsors are needed to see that this, like you said, isn't just a center from Arizona because everyone can say, well, it's your state. Of course you're, you know, worried about it. But, mm -hmm. um, so specifically people can go and find their, their state Senator mm -hmm. and ask them to be a co-sponsor of the Grand Canyon Centennial Protection Act. Yes. Perfect. Easy. That's, yeah. I mean, really easy. Hey, <laughs> yeah, come on, brats. Uh, after you get done listening to this, or I don't even care if you stop this right now, it's that important. Um, you know, make that call. Uh, where is there an easy place for them to find um, that information? I mean, yeah. I'm sure googling it, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I, yeah, I think you can easily Google where what your who your senator is. Um, <laughs> yeah. You can also go to our website, grandcanyontrust.org forward slash take dash action. And you can sign up for our action alerts. So when there's a discrete opportunity to, like there's a vote coming up or Arizona Department of Environmental Quality made a decision about the, the aquifer protection permit, um, they'll get a notification and told about what they can do. And when that action is call your senators, then we always include a button where you can click and find your senator. If oh, you, perfect. It, so it, it really automates it for you. <laughs> Nice. I know I get those alerts. Do you get those alerts, Carrie? Yeah. Oh, okay. Just making sure. Actually, I, I do. <laughs> yeah. I think I'm on their newsletter. And just so <laughs> yeah. your listeners know, like we have, um, we really specify our action alerts. So you, when you sign up, and you probably know this having done it, you can pick 
specific mm -hmm. issues that you're that you're interested in. So you can sign up for them all, or you can sign up for one. And we have a very conscientious communications team that really strives to not just spam you with <laughs> unlimited information. And hopefully that's your experience. But um, mm -hmm. just for anyone who has who has a little reticence about signing up for action alerts. Yeah. That's great to do. Thank you for doing that. But um, you guys should all still sign up for them all. So. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything, um, any other main topics that you'd like to? Um, yeah. The book called Uranium by Tom Zollner. And hmm. it's an interesting read. I read it when I first started this job as like just a jump right in, interesting everything about uranium book that's that's written by a pretty sharp guy and he goes hmm. through the full history of uranium and when we started mining it and what we were using it for i mean we used to use it as like clothing dye and there were radium spas <laughs> radium spas um, yeah really really crazy ideas um but it's it's really interesting if if folks want to look into that um what well, what's your background that caused you to be interested in, in this whole thing? We didn't, didn't talk about yeah. that. Um, well, I grew up in rural southwestern Wyoming on a tiny ranch um, <coughs> Excuse me, that was about 20 miles southeast of the town of Rock Springs, Wyoming, which is where I went to high school. And we lived off the grid, not because we were trying to be hippies and eco-conscious <laughs> or whatever. We just, there literally wasn't electricity. So... My dad was a teacher and my mom's been an early childhood educator her whole life and they didn't have a ton of money to play with. So we had uh, an interesting time of generating our own electricity. A lot of the stuff we used was used. <laughs> um, so like we had a small solar panel set up and a tiny windmill and then a gasoline power generator when all else failed or broke. That experience, I. I lived out there my whole childhood until I was a senior in high school. And that was a really eye-opening experience for me. I think it wasn't eye-opening until I moved into town and realized that you could leave things plugged into the wall. And like, <laughs> if you left a light on, like nothing was going to happen in immediately. Um, and that, so that kind of gave me an appreciation for like where our electricity comes from and, and what it's like to not have it. And living in southwestern Wyoming, I also had the really awesome childhood experience of just being out in the most beautiful landscapes all the time, whether I was in my front yard or whether I was out hunting with my dad in the Upper Green River Basin or up in the up in the Wind Rivers, like it's really beautiful open landscape. And when I was in high school, there was a gas boom and the price of natural gas suddenly blasted up to, I think it was like $14 in MCF. And there was a huge rush to drill for natural gas right outside my hometown. And so I also got to see what it looks like when a landscape is beautiful and open and clean and there's not another soul in sight to going out and seeing spider webs of extraction wells um, and what that does to the air quality. The, the tiny town of Pinedale, Wyoming, where my grandparents lived, um, which is just on the, the west side of the Wind Rivers, was um, it, it still to this day has air quality problems that rival Los Angeles in Wow. in the wintertime when there are inversions and like antelope migration corridors were cut off by oil and gas wells. And so this was, it was just my eye-opening childhood experience of like what mineral extraction can do to a place that we love and to the resources that are critical to our lives and livelihoods um, that got me interested in it. And I went to the University of Wyoming and that's what I studied in my undergraduate. And then I took a year off between undergrad and grad school because I wasn't sure if I wanted to go to law school or grad school. Um, and I took that year to just spend my life on the river. And we, I think I spent like 
56 days on the river that year, which I know is not, doesn't hold water to some river guides out there, um, especially, but, but it was a big thing for me. And, and my first multi-day rafting trip was down the Grand Canyon. That was my first time to Northern Arizona and people who aren't raft guides (laughs) and probably hate me for this, but it was a private trip and it just, I had a big group of friends and we all put in for a permit. So somebody got it. And, um, yeah, so that was my introduction to Northern Arizona and the Grand Canyon. And when I got out, I literally like the day I got out, I checked my email and I saw that I got into grad school at NAU and here I am. (laughs) I I (laughs) studied environmental science and policy here, got my master's. And then I went to Wyoming for almost four years to work for a statewide nonprofit there that did environmental work. I worked on water and energy issues and then and then saw this job opening at the Grand Canyon Trust in 2016. And I've been here since. Awesome. What a great journey yeah. to connect and connection to have with your, your childhood and growing up and, mm-hmm. you know, seeing that and then transforming it into, you know, I mean, it's tough to call it a job or a career. It's a passion and right. something that we are absolutely a thousand percent grateful for that you're out there fighting that fight uh, for all of us brats out there, Canyon brats that love, <laughs> love that place and would be selfishly just, I mean, heart wrenched, you know, if that mining continued and, and took away other creeks and other tributaries, uh, let alone all the other impacts has. So I just want to say you. thank you mm-hmm. so much for, for all the work that you do. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. And, um, it, it's opportunities like this where you get to just talk to people that I think can be the most important in the long run um because Mm -hmm. just like there's a there's a communication barrier between scientists and the public there's sometimes also a a a barrier between advocates and the public and um, we're behind the scenes hammering away at a keyboard talking to elected officials ourselves when really the the brunt of the force can come from the public and and people who can articulate their own stories and connections to these places and why they're important. Yeah. Yeah. You talked about a spider web of, of these oil wells and stuff like that. I want to be a spider web of conversation. You know, (laughs) this is going to spark me talking to someone who will talk to a couple more people. So yeah, uh, yeah, that's my hope is that this will, and it will. Yeah. I mean, as soon as we're done here, all these people that listen to this, will start having little conversations here and there. And and that's huge. I think. Mm -hmm. I think if there's if any of your listeners are business owners or in a position to be able to speak on behalf of their business, there's a website called getoutdoorsaz.org, and it's a business coalition. So it it's um, where business owners can sign up and be in a community of like-minded businesses where they'll see opportunities to become engaged, especially in this Grand Canyon uranium issue and other issues that are vital to to our public lands, including attempts by state legislatures to um, take over federal land for the state and things oh, like that. Excellent. Yeah, we'll definitely uh, put that out there in a post and include that for all these local business owners who obviously have a huge reason to try to protect this area, especially Grand Canyon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all the tourism that comes through. I had another question come in from Reddit. Uh, This is from Hiking Nurse, and uh, he or she asked, well, actually commented, I camped out several nights sometime around 99 with my dad over spring break at Horn Creek, as well as a few other sites. How dangerous is the water there? What might happen if I were to drink a pint, gallon, etc.? Oof. Yeah. Um, so, (laughs) So Horn Creek is most likely contaminated from the orphan uranium mine, which operated until 1970. And it's still an ongoing federal cleanup site. It's cost taxpayers $15 million and counting to address. And Horn Creek, um, if, if you're on, if you go to the National Parks website, you'll learn that you cannot drink the water in Horn Creek. And the instruction, I think, from the park service goes something like, don't drink this water unless you are in danger of death from dehydration. So basically, 
you get to pick your poison. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know what happens if the person drinks a gallon or a cup, um, but I, I wouldn't drink any of it, to be honest, yeah. which sucks because any of us who have been in the canyon know that water is rare. And unless you're at yeah. the river itself and um, when you're desperate, there's yeah. really nothing else you want in the world. So it sucks <laughs> to have a water source that you can't drink from. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, thank you so, so much for bringing this issue to as many people as we can get it out there to. And actually, you know, giving me a lot more talking points to talk to people because I mm -hmm. love talking to people about the science of the canyon and some of the issues that are going on. And so now I have even more ammunition to, you know, to push this issue forward. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And then, yeah, everyone listening, we gave you some good ideas there, but uh, there's, there'll definitely be a summary and lots of links in the show notes and in plenty of our posts coming up. So look to those and yeah, take easy action. The easiest thing right now to do would be to whoever they are, find out who your Senator is, make a simple call and say, become a co-sponsor of this bill. And like you said before, even if that doesn't happen this year, because the world's a little crazy right now, uh, it gives you something to stand on and, and some backing for, for future uh, reintroductions of this. Yep. Um, yeah. So everyone out there just, yeah, come on, let's do it. Let's protect You're the canyon. You're bored at home quarantining, so you might as well make some phone calls. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> Don't want to hear anyone say they're bored until they've made their calls. <laughs> That's right. We've all got a little bit extra time, I think, right now to do that kind of stuff. <laughs> Cool. Well, thank you so much again. And um, maybe we'll uh, be able to have a celebration episode here in the near future uh, when, that, when that bill gets through the Senate. Yeah, that would be great. <laughs> have a good evening, guys. Cool. You, too. you as well. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Good night. Bye. Well, thanks once again to Amber for hopping on the podcast and talking to us about a, a very important issue surrounding Grand Canyon, literally surrounding Grand Canyon. And thanks to you guys for listening in to yet another episode of the Canyon Brats. Hope you guys are enjoying this podcast. And we also hope that you guys are staying safe and healthy out there. For Carrie Henderson, I am Nick Irvin. We are your Canyon Brats. Now, let's go do something stupid.